How do nephrologists know if their research is going well? Low P values. Are we talking about urine? (laughs) (laughs) We should probably just start the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you should just leave that long stretch of silence in. That is perfect. Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Hey, Paul, how are you doing tonight? I am well enough, Matt. How are you doing? Good. And I know you're a little bit bewildered about what we're doing here, so I'll let me fill you in. Paul, do you remember a couple years ago, uh, our first time doing Neff Madness, I believe it was 2019, and we had a really great time. We did like four episodes. There was maybe some puns involved. Do you have any memory of this? I mean, I don't think you ever fully forget your your first Neff Madness. Yeah, no, it was it was an exciting time. We were we were young and fresh then. We were young and fresh, and and these episodes, uh, we we they were so great. I just wanted to rerun some of them during this new this Neff Madness 2022 when things you know things seem a little bit bright right now, Paul. <laughs> uh, it's brighter ne- than they've been in some time. Yeah, for sure. It's Neff Madness. We have a pod crawl going on with a whole bunch of great other great podcasts and. We decided this year that we would pick about six podcasts and all of us would do a Neff Madness themed episode. The podcasts participating are Cribsiders, The Doctors Washington, Up My Nursing Game, BS Medicine, and the Freely Filtered Podcast. So you can check out the links to those podcasts in our show notes below. And all of them are have released podcasts this month f- with Neff Madness themes. So be sure to check those out. This episode is a repost of one from our 2019. You heard the pun uh, bringing us in here. That was compliments of Hannah Abrams. And of course, super producer Justin Burke brought us three great guests for this episode. Um, You know, Paul, before I tell them about the guests, I I don't think you've told them generally, what is it that we do on Curbsiders? Yeah, no, I was was waiting for a moment to shine. So thanks. Um, Generally, we are the internal medicine podcast. And generally, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And tonight's reboot is no no different. It's just a a recap. And and Matt, you're, you're about to get into some of the things that we talk about in this particular reboot. Yes, this was we talked about how you can safely treat pain in chronic kidney disease. We had three great guests. Dr. Samantha Gelfand at the time was a nephrology fellow. She's now the director of Kidney Pal, the outpatient program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. We had Matthew Sparks, associate professor of medicine at Duke University, and of course, one of the founders of NEFJC and NEF Madness, Freely Filtered Podcast, and David Jerlink. Uh, who is internist, toxicologist, pharmacist, and he was, of course, telling us about tramadol in this episode. This was a great episode, a curbsiders classic, if you will. So, without further ado, Paul, I think I think we should get on with it. Thank you to all three of you for coming on the show. So, we're going to start with Sam. And Sam, I wanted to ask you: Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and include something outside the world of medicine? Sure. Uh, I love one-liners. Um, okay. I'd say I am a 32-year-old uh, formal, former travel guide editor who changed paths to medicine after suffering a temporary delusion that people would be more fun to edit than books. That's that's pretty good. It's interesting. <laughs> Which, Sit outside of medicine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Travel guide. That's So you, I imagine you got to travel a lot then? So I edited uh, the guides, but we we worked as a group with um, researcher writers who were traveling and um, sending back copy. Okay. It was so. back in the like snail mail days where they had to actually send home paper in a in a um, package and they wouldn't get paid until the package arrived. It was incredible. All right. Matt, did you want to give the audience a one-liner? Okay. Uh, I'm Matt Sparks. I... Uh... I was a music major in college. I played the trumpet. 
my goal was to be a principal trumpet player of a symphony. And I quickly realized that the real reason I was there was to be a high school band director and decided that I did not want to do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm totally lost. <laughs> Presumably because you love music and hate to hear it tortured. <laughs> well, it, it, uh, it, I love to play music and I necessarily didn't want to like, uh, make the arrangements on the, the football field, you know, the round <laughs> sort of, you've been to a football game, you've seen it, and uh, someone has to design that. Yeah. That's the band director. I was in marching band for all four years. Okay, then you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. So how? So you, you went from being a trumpet major to pre-med, and now It was you're... a really easy thing, and this is how I like to describe it, is that I was in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Arkansas, if you pull open the course guide, you know, it wasn't online back then. It was just a book and you'd pull up music. And then right before that was a section on microbiology. <laughs> and I just was very fascinated with the courses in microbiology. So I switched my major to microbiology and uh, was going to do research. And mm. I decided that, hey, you could go to medical school, be a physician and research. And I said, that's even better. Yeah. So it's, it's a very logical progression. So you basically plan your life out in alphabetical order in some way. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> Dave, how about a one-liner from you? So I'm a, uh, a PGY 25 uh, internist and uh, do a, a bit of a side hustle in clinical pharmacology and toxicology. Uh, I'll take a, I, I was going to say something different, but I'll take a page from uh, Matt's playbook there. So I, I uh, almost went into music for a career too. In fact, in grade 10, I almost failed grade ten, actually, and I was sort of sort of dead set on playing drums in a, uh, in a going to a jazz program in rural Nova Scotia. But uh, I think in the nick of time, I just sort of uh, realized that I wasn't good enough uh, to be a professional uh, drummer. And uh, as it turns out, uh, I was in a band, and the bass player's sister was like five years older than me, or six years older, and she was a pharmacist. And I had a crush on her, and I thought uh, that that. So I got talking to her, and I heard of pharmacy so i ended up applying to pharmacy and got into that first and from there the interest in medicine developed so so i didn't say it was a good story (laughs) this episode is sponsored by birch mattresses i can say personally my prior mattress was just not doing the job it was lumpy it was too firm and my birch mattress uh let's just say my wife says she feels like she's sleeping in a cloud My sleep has never been better, and as I've said before, I'm someone who struggles with sleep at times, but my Birch mattress is really setting me up for success there. Birch makes organic, non-toxic mattresses that are shipped straight to your door with a no-contact delivery, free shipping, and free returns. They have a 25-year warranty and a 100-night sleep trial, so if you don't like it, they're going to pick it up and take it out of there, but trust me, you're going to like it. Birch mattresses are made right here in America with just three materials sourced straight from nature, organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs, and they even donate 1% of all sales to the National Forest Foundation to plant trees in American forests. So if you're looking for a new mattress, check out birchliving.com curb, because Right now, Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Audience, you know I'm a huge fan of BetterHelp. In fact, I was using BetterHelp long before they were a sponsor on the show because They do a great job of making it easy to get yourself into therapy. You know, we work so hard in our field to take care of other people, but we need to take care of ourselves as well because you know this, if you're not well, how are you going to do a great job of taking care of other people? So this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. BetterHelp is an online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. 
Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. <laughs> All right. Deep centering breath. Let's talk about Mr. Thomas Paine. He's a 62-year-old gentleman. He has a history of high blood pressure, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. His most recent creatinine gave an estimated GFR of 17, and he has a history of significant microalbuminuria, categorizing him as CKD4A3. He is being seen in the clinic because he is complaining of significant knee pain, which is from his known osteoarthritis. A knee brace and physical therapy were not helpful. Previous knee injections have helped with pain, but only for a short time. He asks, Doc, these painful times are trying my soul. What can be done for my pain? So insides, right? <laughs> well, I think we wanted to make the, the proviso before we sort of get deep into this episode that we understand that pain management is complex. We understand it's not just medications, but what we're talking about here is primarily safety of medications in patients with chronic kidney disease. I think that's going to be the focus of much of our discussion. So um, before we get too deep into the weeds, we just want to point out that we realize there are other modalities and other things to talk about in terms of pain management, but we're talking specifically about certain classes of medications. So to start, uh, what are the major pain management modalities in patients with chronic kidney disease? So it's a great question and an important sort of framework to put out there. I hope we get to talk about all of them. Um, we all know it, you know, it, like you said just now, pain management's complex. We're just going to focus on the meds. Um, and I think, you know, the when it you boil it down, if you just boil down every conversation you've ever had on rounds or in clinic, uh, you can start to feel like there's no good option. Like NSAIDs are evil and Tylenol hardly works and opioids are dangerous and all the rest of them that get a lot of, um, you know, FaceTime in the press or, or that are other options, like tramadol, gabapentin, um, antidepressants, those are, those are messy and hard to manage. So, you know, as a nephrologist, I think you can end up feeling um, exasperated or at, at the very worst nihilistic. Um, but all of those modalities have, have benefits and they have potential risks. And depending on the individual patient in front of you, I think any one of them could be useful. And what, what we're hoping to highlight with this show and get from this discussion with you all is, is what types of, you know, what types of pain can we, are we going to face in our patients that have CKD and what are the common classes of medications we might think of using and what sort of pitfalls do we have to look out for so we can safely use these medications. And so the ones I guess we're going to highlight tonight are opioids. You mentioned gabapentin, tramadol. We'll talk about what exactly that is, and then we'll talk about, of course, NSAIDs. So, Sam, uh, why don't you why don't you start with opioids? What are some big things we need to know? And then I want Dave and Matt to to chime in with their two cents as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, opioids. Um, when you're thinking about prescribing an opioid for a uh, pain syndrome in the context of kidney disease, um, I think the most important things is uh, to ask yourself are uh, first of all, does the pain syndrome, uh, is it likely to respond to an opioid? And secondly, um, sort of the, the pharmacology of the opioid you're going to choose. So that boils down to two different aspects. Um, number one, what are the metabolites of that opioid? And number two is, are the metabolites cleared by the kidney and are they metabolically active? So this gets back to some stuff I think we learn in med school when you first start learning pharmacology, uh, but somehow uh, doesn't enter into conversation as frequently as it should on rounds, at least not unless a pharmacist is with us, right? Uh, but when I think about it, you know, um, I do think that some people uh, we, we grow familiar with or um, sort of more comfortable with certain opioids because we see them titrated, we see them used often, and those can actually be um, the sort of least uh, favorable choices for people with kidney disease because of their metabolites. Um, so specifically, the, you know, opioids that we commonly see used, um, like morphine, codeine, oxycodone, um, you know, morphine and codeine specifically, those metabolites are cleared by the kidney and they're metabolically active. So if you give it to someone with kidney disease, 
um, those metabolites are going to build up and they're going to continue to exert an effect while they're built up in um, someone's system, which results in toxicity um, versus, you know, some of the other opioid options like hydromorphone, for example, Dilaudid. That one is clearly one of the least uh, preferred agents of pretty much um, any house staff or fellow or nephrologist um, that I work with in general, but actually in the setting of, of kidney disease, I think the metabolite, which is um, H6G, does build up, but it's completely metabolically inert. So it will eventually be cleared either by the kidney or by di dialysis. And in the meantime, it doesn't cause a, a toxicity syndrome. Dave, do you have anything to add to that about the the opioids, like how do you break you break them down that way? You have morphine, and then you have the they're the synthetic ones. Is that hydromorphone and oxy? Yeah, yeah. So the the naturally occurring ones are going to be things that come from the poppy directly, like so, like codeine and a bit of morphine, and everything else is semi synthetic or fully synthetic in the case of something like fentanyl or tramadol. Um, I guess you know I sort of reflecting on this a little bit, and Sam touched on this a few minutes ago, and she raised an important point. Then I'll, let, me, let me frame it this way. So if I said to my residents or anyone who's listening to this podcast, um, you had a patient with pain and you're trying to pick a pain medicine for him or her, you know, what are you trying to do? And usually the residents or, or med students will say, we're trying to relieve the pain. And of course, that's true. And if you push them a little bit more, you say, well, yeah, but what are you really trying to do? And uh, they'll say, well, trying to improve function and improve quality of life. And I think that's how we tend to think. Um, but I think that's a little bit, and not to get too philosophical about it, but I think that's a little bit, um, we, we tend to focusing on the benefits and what we, and, and, and Sam mentioned earlier, sort of the trade-off, sort of the benefits versus the harms of the drug. And I think I would put it this way. Um, every time you approach a patient with pain and you're going to start a new medication, what you're trying to do is afford the patient more benefits than harms. It's sort of an obvious thing to say, but it actually bears stating because um, with a lot of the agents that we might use, the harms are kind of hard to, like the, the, the benefits are relatively easy to sort of pin down, but the harms are sometimes a cult. Uh, and I, I can, I, not to ramble too much, I can come back to that in a, in a second, but so what, when you're treating pain, what you're doing is conducting a little experiment on the patient, and you don't know at the outset what the result of that experiment is going to be, but what you're trying to do is afford the patient more benefits, pain relief, improved function, quality of life, and so on, than harms. And the, and, and, the, and the thing that I, the issue I have with opioids, and I've changed my thinking on this quite a lot over the last 15 years, is, uh, is that the harms um, with chronic use especially can kind of begin to masquerade as benefit. And if I was to single out one harm, it would be it would be this issue of dependence. And so you all you've all seen this happen, right? The person, you know, you, you try some acetaminophen, doesn't work, you're scared of NSAIDs, so you get right the opioids. And after a couple of certainly a couple of days or even certainly a few weeks on opioids, people become physically dependent. And that's important because if you cut back the dose or they go without the dose, they feel miserable, right? They've got They've got, uh, you know, they have pain. They've got, uh, you know, insomnia. They've got all of the sort of features that someone with opioid withdrawal, a uh, heroin user might have. Um, and they feel better when they resume the drug. And they totally understandably infer that they, this drug is helping them. And what, you know, the, so the drug that might have in the first couple of days of therapy really been relieving their pain and making them feel better is now you know, the primary benefit, especially as the dose goes up, is the avoidance of withdrawal. And so I don't mean to belabor that point, but I think it's something we don't talk about nearly enough. And I think, uh, so I, I, I'm not saying that we don't have a role for opiates in chronic pain, but if we think about that kind of paradigm a little bit more, I think, I think we should maybe be a little more critical of, uh, of, of the drugs and, 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 and try and interpret the, the anecdotes of the patients we got in light of the pharmacology of the, the, the drugs uh, that, you know, lurks in the background. Sorry for the long-winded answer. Matt, do you do you use opioid pain meds in any of your patients uh, on dialysis or just with advanced kidney disease? And is there any one that you think is is more preferable? Well, I can honestly say that I have not used opioids for probably five, six years. Hmm. Um, 
And I think this case in particular really highlights, uh, a, you know, this is someone with the EGFR of 17 and very late stage kidney disease. And uh, you also have another situation where the prescription of an opioid could really um, alter, you know, sort of how you're going to examine the patient or see them. And, um, you know, when they start having symptoms of, of kidney failure and, and potentially needing kidney replacement therapy, um, it, it would, it's going to color sort of how the patient's feeling. Uh, so this is a, a really tricky situation. I'll say this is a very unusual scenario when someone comes to you and is not already on many of the other drugs that we are are in this Neff Madness region, uh, gabapentinoids and others, um, and really highlights the the high risk scenario that they're under. And there's a lot of research that's happening now to show that uh, patients that are on dialysis, and I would probably lump someone who has an EGFR of 17 as pretty much being there. Um, have higher rates of falls and altered mental status. Uh, they're on uh, muscle relaxants as well, which have their own problems. But I do think it's important, and outside of this case, and, and, and we've talked a lot about um, ensuring that you talk about the negative aspects of opioids, but it is still important to for individuals to know which ones to avoid. And we see this all the time. Um, and, and this is, happens in, in I've been on a real big kick to stop baclofen. They say, well, well, what should we take? And I'm like, well, I'm not really advocating anything. I'm just telling you what you shouldn't do. <laughs> hmm. uh, and so this, you, know, you talk about morphine, meperidine, codeine. These are no-nos, like never. And so that, I think that's what we want to highlight those because they do have these toxic metabolites that um, are more powerful than from whence they came. And that's really a scary thing. And uh, they also are very protein bound. They're hard to remove by dialysis, so they'll stick in the system for a long time, and they're uh, they can really pose a very difficult problem. When, for instance, we've seen patients in the hospital who get morphine. Yeah, it's kind of scary though because the the, uh, the the opioids that are recommended are we don't have a lot of experience with. At least most internists don't like methadone, buprenorphine, fentanyl, hydromorphone. When you think about someone leaving on oral hydromorphone, that just kind of makes you feel a little queasy. It, 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 in Canada, I mean, it, we see it all the time. It's probably our number one opioid here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I might just make Matt's comment about never morphine. That, you mean that for chronic pain, right? I'm so talking about someone, a patient on dialysis. Fair mm. enough. Okay. Talking about someone with a really reduced EGFR, you just have to watch out. And I'll say, you know, I am currently a nephrology fellow and, um, you know, avoid NSAIDs, avoid nephrotoxins. These are not helpful statements to anyone mm -hmm. in notes. Um, do not give uh, is also, you know, something I try to avoid as a blanket statement in my notes. Because take this patient you were from Cashlac uh, with the GFR of 17 and say instead of, you know, chronic knee pain, he was coming in with an acute pain. Um you're facing a hard decision there where for that person, um, an NSAID may actually be that straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of tipping him over um, into an AKI that ends up resulting in a requirement for uh, dialysis. So it might avoid starting an opioid, which everybody wants to champion, and it's clearly a good idea epidemiologically. But for the individual patient, I just think it's very complex to say, do not give. Um, you know, as a blanket statement, you're going to always be weighing the risk benefit and the chronicity of how long you're going to be using it. And um, it's it's a pretty individualized uh, uh, judgment call. I will say that us adding baclofen to our notes has really helped a lot in people not giving it to patients that are on dialysis, for instance. I wonder if so it's, I, that I do sticks agree. out because it's not, yeah. I think because it's not well known, it might just jump out at people that hey, don't use this baclofen. Oh, wait, why should I use that? And then they realize that it's renally cleared. But I think it. it I, I think the NSAID one is a good one. We'll get to later. And I, mm -hmm. I completely agree with, um, you know, there, there is some scenarios in which it can be helpful. Uh, so just a blanket statement can be uh, dangerous. But uh, there are other, but, and it, but I think that there's a conversation that can occur. And I've been really thinking about this. And how do we educate people uh, about these things. Um, and, you know, they're not getting it in the books, um, the lectures, uh, it's happening. Um, so that's why we started uh, 
button campaigns, wearing buttons in the hospital to to bring awareness to some of these these medications that are dangerous in patients on kidney disease. And thinking about, you know, what are ways in which we can um, get our, our message out about um, what drugs should be, and maybe it's maybe not avoid, but use it cautiously, or maybe, you know, hey, you should ask me about this uh, uh, medication that has a, a, a lot of problems in, in patients with kidney failure. And and I just don't think that it's on the radar of the general internist. Um, and I get all the time, wow, I never knew that, you know, I never knew Baclofen was cleared by the kidney. Right. And, you know, I never knew, you know, and so that it's very important to, to get that message out there. So I just want to respond to one other thing you said, Stuart, which was, you know, the, the options that are safest, um, quote unquote safest in, in CKD, like hydromorphone and methadone and buprenorphine, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a complex social historical thing that methadone and buprenorphine are as um, siloed as they are in the U.S. And I just right. recently got, I did this amazing um, month-long rotation in Sydney where I was learning about palliative care in nephrology. And one of their, um, one of their sort of safest uh, titratable opioid options for pain in people with kidney disease is actually a Norspan patch, which is buprenorphine. Um, I don't know, uh, Dave, if that's available in Canada, but I think it's it's too bad that we don't have it as an option um, in well, this you, country. You, you, you do have a patch in the U.S. Uh, I forget the name of it, but it's approved by the FDA for chronic pain. It's so buprenorphine, Butrans is the same, same as here. But so you still need an patch. X waiver to prescribe yeah, it, well, right? So, so you, it's, yeah, so the U.S., no offense, guys, but the U.S. is weird on the whole buprenorphine thing. Like, oh it is, totally. you know, the, the idea that you can come out of medical school and on your first day with an MD, you can write a prescription for fentanyl patches, but you need some special training to write a prescription for bup is yeah. crazy. It's insane. Yeah, people die because of it. People die because of that. I mean, it's really, it's not, it's not, um, uh, it's, it's very difficult to justify. Um, buprenorphine is, um, I mean, it, I, it's a special drug. I, I have seen, uh, I mean, not just for patients with addiction, but for pain. Uh, I've seen people, I, I use it a fair bit to transition people, CKD or not, off of high doses of opioids, people who are on two, 300, 400 milligrams of morphine a day. And, uh, you know, done properly, their, their pain very often improves dramatically and their quality of life improves. It's, it's, it's an incredibly versatile and, and quite safe drug compared to full agonists. Our our producer Justin is is sending us uh just to clarify in the U.S. I'm pretty sure that you can prescribe buprenorphine for pain without an X waiver. Yes, the X yes. waiver is for addiction treatment. Addiction, yes. that's right, exactly. Dave, I wanted to ask you about the WHO ladder specifically for uh, chronic pain management in CKD four and five. It it lists step one is acetaminophen, step two use with caution tramadol. And step hmm. three is for severe pain. They 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 prefer hydromorphone, fentanyl, methadone, buprenorphine. That's where Stuart was getting that from. And they say you would cautiously use oxycodone. And as Matt's pointed out multiple times, morphine, meperidine, propoxyphene, codeine. Those ones are you know sh should not use in CKD. Can you yeah. can you comment on? If you are using any opioids in patients with chronic pain and CKD, and and how do you approach that? Is well, I think so. It's important the the whole issue of opioids for chronic pain. You'll get very different questions when you ask different clinicians, and and, and people have very divergent views on the role of opioids for chronic pain. Um, I, I I don't prescribe them very often, uh, and when I do, um, it is with a lot more caution than I did 15 or 20 years ago. Like I thought nothing 20 years ago. I had a patient with sickle cell crisis and they were on high doses of opioids. And I, I just, they came in in pain crises. I bumped their pain meds up uh, and I didn't think about it. I sort of, I had this simplistic, and I think a lot of us still have this sort of kind of simplistic, you know, well, it's full agonist. And if the patient's still got pain, you just need more of it. As if that's, as if it's, as if it's that simple. And it's way more complicated than that because because the you know all of the side effects are dose dependent, and when you get to doses uh, like like I was referring to a while ago, it's very easy to harm the patient more than help them. But back to your your question, um, the, the latter is not nearly creative creative enough. And I think and I think you know I I have a um, like I think there's this we we start with 
acetaminophen, then we go to NSAIDs, then we go to opioids, and we throw in gabapentin or, or antidepressants just because we're trying to find the right sort of concoction for a given patient. Um, I, you know, I don't know how, it's probably very state dependent in the US, but I, I think we might want to give a little more consideration to cannabinoids, not inhaled, not, not, I'm not saying a person should roll a joint and smoke it necessarily, but oral cannabinoids. I mean, there's a good example of a drug. It might not help. But you know, it's probably not going to hurt. At least it's not. It's not got no side effects. But but it's, it doesn't have the same pharmacological baggage as NSAIDs and opioids. So if I, you know, I'm looking at this case here and thinking, you know, if I had some 60 year old guy with bad CKD and I was kind of reluctant to use NSAIDs and I didn't want to commit him to chronic opioid therapy, and I don't think a whole lot, honestly, about some of the other drugs we'll talk about. If that guy says to me, "Listen, I can get, I can." Um, you know, at bedtime, take a puff off a vaporizer, or I can take a small dose of some CBD oil or low THC oil, and it doesn't interfere with my function too much, and my pain is better. I think that's a win. So I think that the the idea that this ladder exists, and by the way, the original WHO pain ladder that was just bastardized for decades, was introduced in 1986, and it was meant for cancer pain. And we just took it and just extrapolated it to chronic pain based upon nothing. Like no right. data at all, um, but it, there's, it, 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 there are so many other things we might consider, and um, I think it's easy to be a little too enthusiastic about cannabinoids, but I think they're a, a consideration. What about uh, ketamine for chronic pain for dialysis patients? Well, I'm a huge fan of ketamine in the hospital. I mean, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very versatile, extremely safe uh, drug. You know, 0.1, 0.2 mg per kilo IV over 15 minutes. Um, it's hard to hurt somebody. You give it too quickly, you space them out for a little while, and that's about it. Um, I, I, as an oral agent for long, chronic pain, I don't think it's a good idea. There's, there's, it's hard to get. Um, but even if you could find someone who did respond to it, it's got some serious bladder issues that we don't. I mean, you, occasionally we'll see people who get. Um, you know, chronic, nasty, um, uh, you know, irritative bladder and and, and sometimes even uh, upper GI upper, upper GU symptoms from from ketamine. So I, 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 to me, it's a it's a versatile opioid sparing drug in the acute care setting. I don't think it's got a huge role to play in chronic pain. Well, I find it kind of curious that we're ignoring. I feel like an obvious choice: the completely non addictive, as good as opioids, <laughs> um, reliable, particularly dose tramadol. I mean, it's, oh, it's yes. right there. Uh, it's yes. safe. Yes, yes. <sighs> I totally walked past your, you. You asked the question about tramadol, and I, I you put it in the ladder, and I just talked around it. You did. Um, <laughs> so. Do you want me to talk about tramadol? Should I just unleash that? <laughs> yes. Unleash and we would love yeah. more. It's what we want. <laughs> okay. Game for So just to make a point. So if, and, and if anybody, I wrote a, a blog post about this on uh, Talks in the Hound a couple months ago. Um, and I, I should make clear that I think there are some people that tramadol can help. And you will find people who are on low doses of tramadol. And it seems to be achieving the goal we talked about, you know, benefits exceeding harms. Um, but tramadol is a funny drug. So tramadol itself, this is a synthetic opioid made in the 60s, it is an SNRI. It's more or less like venlafaxine, and it interferes with the reuptake of serotonin, norepinephrine, and, and it interferes with pain pathways through that mechanism in, in the dorsal horn. It's metabolized, though, to an opioid, a pretty good mu agonist. Um, goes by a couple of names, but M1 is the sort of the common name of it. So so we, we tramadol enters our our, uh, you know, our, our armamentarium with this, it's advertised as having two mechanisms of action. It's got a bit of an SNRI, it's got a bit of an opioid, doesn't that sound great? And it's also perceived as a mild opioid. And in a lot of countries, and including until recently in Canada, it wasn't treated as a controlled substance. You know, it was in the same, in Canada for years, it was in the same, you know, classification as a torpostat and their hydrochlorothiazide. You needed a prescription. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, a lot of docs and dentists had the perception that it was somehow devoid of all the opioid-related harms, despite the fact that its metabolite is an opioid. The problem I've got with tramadol isn't just that kind of messiness. It's the fact that the conversion of the SNRI parent compound, tramadol, to its metabolite is accomplished by an enzyme in the liver, the same enzyme that turns codeine into morphine, CYP2D6. And... Um, we have wildly varying levels of that enzyme. Some of us have none. We won't make any opioid. Some of us have several copies of the gene that encodes for 2D6, and we'll turn tramadol into M1 like nobody's business. So, you know, the idea, when you start somebody in tramadol, you know, in that little experiment I mentioned a while ago where you're trying to help more than harm, um, you're introducing this 
uh, this variability, this, 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 um, like you don't know whether you're giving somebody mostly venlafaxine or a lot of morphine equivalents. Like you just, you, you, you don't know. And I think, um, it's not that it's, uh, it's not that it's wrong to ever use it, but I think it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. As you're saying this about this, I, I think probably if everyone thinks back clinically to patients they've seen and talked to about tramadol, you get some of these patients to say tramadol doesn't work. And then you get right. maybe a small subset of patients that are like, I love tramadol. It works well for me. I feel okay on it. And those are the only patients mm-hmm. that I'm really using it for. Uh, of course, we've all read this uh, this toxin hound post, which I have to say is legitimately, I mean, a- other than Sam's Neff Madness uh, post that she wrote, um, this is one of my favorite pieces of medical writing. I, I mean, it's just, you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned that, uh, I think this is, you, you're talking about that the active metabolite is ODT, which is a mu opioid mm. agonist. And you say ODT should not be confused with founding member of Wu-Tang Clan ODB, old dirty <laughs> bastard, yeah. who collapsed that, and died in 2004 it? with cocaine, and I kid you not, tramadol in his system. Uh, I thought that was finding a way to put ODB into a blog post about tramadol and make your point. Uh, just really... I- I can, I can die now. It's, you, uh, yeah, your career may, you if you retired... What I mean, will be in your system? <laughs> <laughs> ODB. So, yeah, so I think that, and, and yeah, the point, so the point you're making is, what I'm hearing is that patients that uh, take tramadol, we don't know if they're going to get just the SNRI effect or if they're going to get a little bit of the mu opioid agonism or if they're going to get a lot of it really quickly. And then can you talk a little bit about the... Um, kind of the variation you said in the Middle East or some other places, maybe it's more likely uh-huh. to be abused. Right. So that enzyme, that CYP2D6 enzyme that turns codeine on, like codeine, for example, doesn't have any analgesic effects until it's turned into morphine. Tramadol is converted to M1. That enzyme varies, uh, like, like most you know genetic things, it tends to travel and sort of respects ethnogeographic uh, sort of um, areas of the planet. If you're in the Horn of Africa, so you know Ethiopia, Somalia, probably a third of people, or in Saudi, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, probably a third of people are ultra rapid metabolizers. They'll they'll convert tramadol to M1 very efficiently. If you go north, the farther you go from the equator, the, the less likely you are to be a, a, a an ultra rapid 2D6. And in fact, if you go to Scandinavia, it's pretty common for people to have no functional 2D6. And if you give them codeine, you know, my limited experience with people from uh, Finland is they don't want analgesia anyway. But if you did give somebody from Finland codeine, it wasn't. It's not going to do anything to them. Um, and and tramadol might have some SSRI or SNRI kind of effects, but not so much of an opioid effect in that in that group. You you could in theory genotype somebody, um, but uh, like I think that's just unnecessary. It just complicates matters. And even if you did genotype somebody, if you genotype me and found that I had you know, ultra rapid 2D6, and I should, in theory, turn tramadol into its metabolite. Um, I might be on bupropion, or I might be on paroxetine, or something else that turns off 2D6. And this is another issue, by the way, if you happen to have someone on tramadol, and they're doing okay, and then you deploy some 2D6 inhibiting drug, like bupropion or paroxetine would be the biggies, or amiodarone, um, you could precipitate opioid withdrawal. So one, one of the other concerns I've got with tramadol is its interactions, so... Yeah, and on that yeah. note, you know, everything we're saying about tramadol applies to anyone taking tramadol. Um, in the context of people with kidney disease, the interactions is just something we we have to think about carefully since mm. the average patient on dialysis is on something like 19 medicines. So I think we're just, uh, you, you know, that's true no matter what. 19. When on that many. Yeah. Okay, so tramadol, some other things to point out. Uh, look out for seizures, possibly serotonin syndrome if you combine it with a bunch of other drugs, and hypoglycemia as well. But you can read the the post on Toxin the Hound we'll listen to. You can read Sam's write-up uh, for Neff Madness as well if you want more on that. And now, uh, why don't we go, Sam, so back to this case, our guy with knee pain here. Why not give him an NSAID? What, yeah. What's the downside? You, you mentioned already his GFR is kind of on the last legs here, his eGFR. Yeah. So, right. Um, contrary to what will have you believe that NSAIDs are evil no matter what, I think the um, the data over the last 30 years of uh, studying it is um, a bit mixed on whether, um, you know, whether 
so long-term NSAIDs have a, a direct effect on um, increasing incidence or progression of CKD. It's different from this situation where this person is um, living on the verge of where we start to see symptoms and metabolic consequences of renal failure, which is a GFR, um, usually around 15, although it varies from person to person. So, you know, why avoid an NSAID in this person? Well, uh, how do NSAIDs work? Um, they inhibit prostaglandins and thereby inhibiting prostaglandin-mediated inflammation, um, which we perceive as painful. Uh, so that's a good thing in general when you have a, um, you know, a toothache or a um, inflamed, uh, uh, I don't know what, but uh, knee, avoided, <laughs> knee. Well, no, but this, gout flare. You know, <laughs> yeah, gout flare. The um, the problem with inhibiting prostaglandins um, in certain people with kidney disease is that renal blood flow in some people is prostaglandin dependent. So um, there are some specific conditions that. Um, worry us most, uh, and mostly conditions of, you know, reduced effective arterial blood volume, um, like heart failure, uh, uh, cirrhosis with um, portal hypertension, and sometimes nephrotic syndrome. Um, in those people, the systemic physiology is such that the renal blood flow is dependent on the prostaglandin. So you give an NSAID and you will see the GFR go down because you will see less filtering. I mean, less blood is really um, getting to the filter and therefore um, creatinine goes up and everybody gets worried. Um, I think, you know, even if you don't have one of those three conditions, when you are this close to the border of um, of stage five CKD and, and needing to make decisions about dialysis, uh, you're running a, a risk there that even a transient um, reduction in blood flow from, say, three days of NSAIDs uh, you might or might not rebound from that when you um, when you stop the NSAID. So this particular situation is a bit risky. On the other hand, things I think we don't appreciate is that, you know, for example, an aneuric person, someone on dialysis, all of those effects um, that we're talking about, uh, the reduction of, of renal blood flow, as well as some of the more um, sort of electrolyte-related effects of, of sodium retention, hypertension, all of those are out the window if you're aneuric. Um, and so I think, you know, if this person were already on dialysis and he's having a flare of his chronic knee pain, a short course of NSAIDs is a, is a reasonable option, knowing that, of course, AKI is not the only uh, risk of NSAIDs. You have to be on the lookout for uh, uh, GI toxicity, bleeding, um, you know, other, other aspects of it. But th that's a, it's a good example of, of how the individual case really uh, helps you make the judgment call of how safe or um, worthwhile the risk the, the medicine is going to be. Dave, you have any comments on NSAIDs and CKD or yeah. just in general? Yeah, I think, um, so general comment, I think, you know, we've all been burned by NSAIDs in one way or another, right? So GI bleeds or AKI or heart failure or what have you. I do think that over the last couple of decades, we've been, um, we, we've been sort of, we've been inculcated with this idea that opioids are safer than NSAIDs. The pendulum starting to swing a little bit. Um, but especially in older people, there's this perception that you wouldn't touch an old person with uh, NSAIDs, but, you know, opioids are okay. Um, I think I've, sort of staked out my thoughts on that a little while ago. In this guy, um, yeah, I sort of agree with Sam. I, I'm kind of worried about his afferent arterial. I'm worried about uh, about making his GFR 17 um, drop. And I, I guess he's also uh, um, he's also diabetic. Uh, is he on? He's, I don't know if he's on ACE or not, but, you know, there's also the risk of hyperkalemia here and, and being and having a, a diabetes is going to be an independent risk factor for that. So I, I don't know. I'd be... I'd be pretty reluctant, um, much as I generally favor NSAIDs over opioids. I'd be I'd be kind of reluctant in this fellow, given how precarious he he sounds. Matt, I'm going to ask you the tough question. Actually, I know Stuart. Stuart's probably going to ask this one if I don't. Stuart, the topical NSAIDs. Absolutely, I wanted to ask that specifically. Okay, so that's mine. Okay, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that. It, <laughs> I mean, from from what I've I've seen about topical NSAIDs, not not a lot will be absorbed, and that could actually be an option for this individual. But one of the things I wanted to highlight um, outside of uh, what we've already talked about is that um, chronic NSAID use can also lead to hypertension, um, and you will see in um, 
and patients that you'll take care of, wow, you know, stop the inset and your blood pressure comes down. And there's a, a variety of mechanisms that, um, that of why this occurs. And we're trying to understand that and try to, um, you know, minimize that effect. So, uh, hypertension is something that, um, and this is all outside the context of necessarily CKD, but that effect is even worse in, in a, C- a patient with CKD. Does the, uh, the site of location affect the absorption at all or the renal adverse events? Like, let's say I have some lower back pain, but it's actually costovertebral angle tenderness, and I'm putting it right over, over my kidney. You just want to, yeah. So if you actually place the patch on the kidney, is that what you're trying to do? <laughs> Let's not do that. Dave, do you know do you know much uh, up in Canada? Are topical NSAIDs used much? Do you know much about, uh, yep. have much experience using them in patients with CKD? Does it give you pause? Um, well, I mean, they certainly get, diclofenac in particular gets a fair bit of use. Um uh, I I gotta say I don't usually get too concerned about. Maybe I haven't thought about this enough, but I I would uh, have no problem. Again, if the goal is to, the the experiment and the, the you know have a chance of helping the patient, I think the the, the harms have got to be lower than systemic ones. So I, I wouldn't uh, I'd keep an eye on someone's creatinine, but I, I wouldn't uh, be reluctant to try a topical NSAID. So the the only patient that I've had an adverse event uh, that I know of from using topical diclofenac was a patient that I prescribed two tubes of it, and uh, it described that he was only supposed to use it for, for his hand pain, but the script said, apply as directed over painful areas. So he goes home, he takes the two tubes, and he takes a shower with, he basically rubs all over his body, comes back, his creatinine went from uh, a 1.2 to 5.7 in a two-day period. So does this change your he covered his whole his whole body with it? He covered yeah. his whole body in it. So now, so, when you prescribe it, do you specifically talk <laughs> about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did, I did then as well, but but the the script the the script got changed after I put it in. So I don't. Yeah, know. that don't that pa- I'm assuming that patient didn't have copays for his medication. He was not worried about using it all in, <laughs> in one application. No. He could just get know, brushing, brushing his teeth with it too. <laughs> yeah. Um, This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Come on, audience. We all know about Squarespace. Squarespace is a fantastic all-in-one platform for building your own website, maybe growing a brand, starting an online business. Squarespace makes it easy to get started with great features like Squarespace email campaigns that let you easily start up an email list, connect with your audience, Find those 1,000 true fans. And speaking of that, Squarespace analytics are going to tell you just who's visiting your site, who are they, get inside their head, help you really speak to your audience so you can continue to grow them, engage with them, and their blogging tools make it easy to share your stories, your photos, your videos, and update your audience on all the cool stuff you're doing out there. We hear from you all the time at the Curbsiders, and we know lots of you have great ideas of your own, so why not start a website at Squarespace and start putting that great content out there into the world? Head to squarespace.com curb for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CURB to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com curb, and use the offer code curb to save 10% off your first purchase. Folks, if you're anything like me, you maybe feel like you're on the razor's edge of being replaced. I, I know Watto's thinking about it. He may not say anything, but I, I just get the sense that he'd be happy to do away with me. And when he does, I hope he finds a way to do it quickly and easily. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Indeed. Hiring is challenging. It's time for a hiring partner that can help you rise to the challenge. And that partner is Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed makes it easy to hire great talent. According to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. 
So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. This offer is valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash internal medicine to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Again, that's Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, if you want to start a, ki- a uh, kidney podcast, you're in the right place. <laughs> All right. I- I'm going to ignore that comment. And I, I wanted to make uh, two points before we moved on. Uh, Sam, you were mentioning patients should be, if they're aneuric, uh, th- so that, that means we should ask patients on dialysis if they are still making urine. Because if they're not, if they are, then we probably shouldn't be so cavalier with the NSAIDs. That's what I'm getting from what you were, you were mentioning there. Totes. And okay. actually knowing whether your dialysis patient makes urine at all will is helpful for more than just NSAIDs. Uh, it, it changes their prognosis. It changes how you should think about IV contrast. It's a good thing to ask on any sort of history. So the, the last thing I wanted to say about NSAIDs, we did a show with Joel. Uh, Joel, Matt has, uh, in pre-recording, Matt claimed uh, your job as the chief of nephrology at Cashlack Memorial. I'll let you guys fight that out there. <laughs> but uh, so our former chief of nephrology, Joel Toff, uh, Joel, please don't come after me on Twitter. Um, he, he actually, he did an episode with us on CKD and we talked a lot about medications and he has a whole presentation he gives about all the evidence for patients with less severe CKD and, and the use of NSAIDs. So they, you can go to that podcast. I think it's like number 64 or 66, something like that. We talked about that. So we'll put that in the show notes for you. Um, but we're talking about patients with more severe advanced kidney disease in, in this part here, but maybe... His point was that for patients with less severe disease, um, you might think about using them, but you got to be careful with what else they're on. So, Paul, did you want to get us into the next part of the case? Sure. Nothing I would love more. So, <laughs> unfortunately, Mr. Payne reports that in addition to his knee pain, he's having pins and needles pain in his toes and feet. And this has really been bothering him. It's decreased his ability to perform his daily activities. It's been hampering his independence. Are there other medications that could help with this type of neuropathic pain? And so I, I think this is our oh so smooth segue into the gabinergic <laughs> medications like gabapentin and pregabalin for pain and, and how effective and safe they are in CKD. Yeah. So sounds like uh, uh, this patient who has diabetes has a peripheral symmetric uh, distal neuropathy that is probably diabetic neuropathy. And that's so common in, in people with uh, CKD and, and people without so the last section is about, um, you know, these gabinergics, which, you know, gabapentinoids, gabinergics, I think we've made up both of those words, uh, <laughs> but it's essentially the, the class of meds that has been um, synthesized to uh, uh, be an analog, basically, of the neurotransmitter GABA, which diminishes uh, pain transmission through, you know, the central nervous system and basically a reduction of the glutamate uh, mediated pathway of pain signaling. Um, I think when you're uh, considering one of these meds, a lot of a lot of feelings and experiences come up. There's both the experience of giving it to someone and watching them turn into a zombie with uh, altered mental status and myoclonus and um, all sorts of odd behaviors. And then there's the opposite end of the spectrum where you give it to someone and they, they lose uh, some faith in you because they say it didn't work at all. And, um, you know, what can you do for real for my pain? I, you know, more optimistically, I've come around to um, find a sweet spot for these meds and a real a role for them as long as they're given with with expectation management and with a really careful eye on dosing um, related to, to kidney function as well as um, other meds and, and the, uh, overall uh, sort of function and, and, uh, illness state of the person. I do want to get comments from, from everybody on this. My, my first experience with gab, with a gabapentinoid, um, I guess adverse reaction I could say was as an intern at Cashlack, a woman got admitted with altered mental status, totally somnolent, wasn't intubated, but was to the point where we're doing lumbar punctures and everything. Finally, 24 hours into the admission, her nephrologist calls 
uh, got a hold of us, found out she was there somehow, and he said, hey, listen, I know what's wrong with her. She always takes too much. She's supposed to take it only once every two days, her gabapentin, but she was taking too much. And all we did was just watch her. Um, you know, we had already done the LP and things, and she just she got better with zero treatment at all. It was just all gabapentin. When she woke up and finally a family member came out of the woodwork, we we found out she had just been taking tons of her gabapentin. So it was a good lesson to learn early in my intern year where I was just like always have always been very like, you know, that's the kind of thing you don't forget seeing because um, this woman, she was so sick seemingly, and it was all just this medication. I think that's what we as nephrologists, we see this all the time and we say, it's the medicine, it's the medicine, it's the medicine. And like you said, they, even though they were prescribed a certain amount, does not necessarily mean that's how much they were taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I agree with Sam on this point, though. This, these can be useful in the right scenario. Um, neuropathic pain is one of those, especially in diabetes, that I have had some success. Um, but meticulous control, uh, you know, meticulously looking at their um, GFR and dosing the medication uh, appropriately. And that's not maxing it. I always like to go below what the dosing, um, you know, sort of guidelines say in that. And then also really educate them that this is not something that you want to misuse and, and, and just take a whole lot of it. And uh, another, another thing to, to tell them is that you shouldn't drive after taking it. You know, you can, um, you know, you can become altered or, uh, and then, so there's, a, there's a lot of caveats to these. And I think that's why pain management is very uh, challenging because um, it can spend a lot of time talking to them about pain, how to do it right, what you need to think about. And so uh, it's a serious thing that you need to consider when you, you're, you're, you're wanting to put someone on a gab- gabinergic medication with decreased kidney function. And that's why, uh, you know, when someone's kidney function is getting around the 15 20 uh, range, um, we're seeing them a lot as a nephrologist and in concert with their primary care physician because like things are rapidly evolving and that's where you have to make these dose adjustments on a, on, um, on a you know, visit once a month or once a week. Dave, are you using gabapentin, pregabalin in patients with CKD and do you have any, any words of wisdom for, for the audience? Yeah, so I think these drugs get used a lot, um, and I think uh, I think they aren't as, aren't as effective as there's, I think there's this perception that they're useful opioid sparing agents, and that we can use them to sort of avoid opioids or minimize the dose of opioids that we use. And uh, I guess because of the GABA sort of they are GABA analogs structurally, although they don't actually do much at GABA receptors. There's this perception that maybe they're sort of preferred therapy for. For, for neuropathic pain. I won't say that they don't work. I mean, you can find some people in whom they will help. Um, but, you know, the data on the drugs is really pretty abysmal when you look at right. it. And I think that, um, and and they all, they also have, they're prone to misuse. They've got a well-described withdrawal syndrome. Um, I So I will sometimes use them, but again, I, without, uh, oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just going through that whole exercise of trying to roll the dice and see if I can help the patient feel better. But I've got very little in the way of expectations. If they help, great. If they don't, I would have a low threshold to try and you know abandon them after a week or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they are very popular here. So generally, uh, generally with all these meds, the whole start low, go slow thing. When you're coming down off the drugs, is it a similar thing? You for gabaergic for the gabapentin and pregabalin, you also come down slowly yeah. on them. Yeah, it's probably less of an issue in patients with CKD because they're going to, the drugs will hang around and they'll coast sort of, just the kinetics will be such that they'll coast off a little more, um, a little more, uh, you know, gradually anyway. But if you had someone who was on, you know, 1800 gabapentin a day, we see this not infrequently. Um, and they were to go without, I mean, they, they can get a pretty impressive withdrawal syndrome. It looks, it looks no small amount like alcohol withdrawal. Um, uh, and it's you can pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. Yikes, and just, to compare numbers, you know, when we're talking about starting gabapentin or pregabalin for someone with advanced CKD, you know, the numbers I usually have in mind are, you know, gabapentin of 100 milligrams, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on dialysis days only, uh, not three times a day, slowly up titrating to effect, but sometimes, you know, toxicity is too great. And for pregabalin, we're talking 25 milligrams a day, not your, you know, standard starting dose of 75. So it's really, uh, 
I think important to stress those recommendations as starting doses because um, you'll you'll never use the drug again if you give a high dose and they have a terrible uh, yeah. I, zombie episode. I, I, th- I think my I would just make make sure that people have and I think maybe Sam said this minimizing expectations. I mean, great if they really afford an improvement in pain and function, but I I, I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I, I, I'll go ahead and let me say I wouldn't expect them to do that. Um, I think that they they can sometimes help, but more often than not, I just sort of disappointing. I, I wanted to make a point though that a lot of times, as a nephrologist, when we're seeing patients, it's very, very rarely that I ever start these meds, and most mm-hmm. of the time, it's uh, it's ratcheting back to stopping. So it's mm-hmm. an important thing though to look at the patient and look at their med list to reconcile those medications, see what they're on, ensure the dosing is correct, and and be proactive in this approach. Um, we spot we spend a lot of time talking about indications for starting, but we haven't really focused a lot of time on ensuring there that we are actively decreasing the dose uh, when their EGFR starts to drop. We we've talked about this on prior shows, but can you can you Matt can you tell us what do you use to estimate the the GFR? Are you doing a creatinine clearance with Cockcroft Galt? Can you what? How do you recommend the audience tackle that? Well, there's multiple ways that you can estimate someone's glomerular filtration rate, which is how we measure uh, kidney function. Um, the FDA, when they're approving drugs or what have you, talking about um, dosing, unfortunately still use cockcroft galt, um, which is a historical sort of thing. Um, but, you know, at the hospital, we do not use that. We use usually the CKD-EPI uh, or the MDRD equation. Um uh, which is a, it's a little more accurate than the uh, Cockcroft Galt, which was first published in 1976 uh, in an obscure journal called Nephron, which no longer exists. Um, but I think in, in the end, uh, both the CKD epi the, uh, and the uh, MDRD equation will, will give you similar results that you can sort of um, look at uh, that number and then make a determination for what sort of their kidney function is. And so it's not always like this is the exact EGFR this patient has, because as you know, you can measure it each day and it will change just a bit. Um, but it's sort of, you need to understand, is this very severe kidney function um, decline? So for instance, the patient has EGFR of 17. Um, and as Sam mentioned several times that this is where we start to see symptoms. Um, down to the 15, uh, 10 range. And so that's pretty, pretty poor kidney function. And then you look at the other, say 30, uh, still very, very depressed kidney function and then 60, uh, that, that sort of gets you to see a nephrologist. So that, you know, just sort of understand that um, when you look at EGFR, it, it helps us sort of uh, look at what's happening and it takes their creatinine and it, and it uses their weight and ethnicity and all these factors and puts out a number. And that, and that helps us sort of gauge what their kidney function is. Matt, just a follow-up question. If somebody has, if somebody has acute kidney injury, what, what do you, what do you set the EGFR at? You just assume it's less than 30. Is that when yeah, you're dosing I, meds? It's a very good question. And this is a, you know, when someone comes in with AKI, acute kidney injury, uh, this is a dynamic situation. And, and I usually, you know, you assume they have an EGFR uh, of zero, depending on if it's very severe. Um, but it, I think it's you just should assume that you're going to basically have no clearance of uh, of anything. Um, and the reason for that is like, well, maybe it went from one to two today, but what's what will it be tomorrow? Um, uh, and so that you know, it the creatinine elevation. Uh, only occurs well after the fact of the injury. So you're not really, you know, <laughs> you actually probably should have done the, the dose adjustment on your medications the day prior, but we re- we, we don't really know, um, you know, there hopefully in the future we'll have better markers for acute kidney injury, but in the currently in clinical practice, creatinine is all we have. We need to follow this patient up very closely. So this would be someone I might even see in a week and say, you know, if I were to start them on an agent, you know, how, how are things going? Make sure there's a plan in place for 
um, you know, really definitively uh, taking care of this knee pain. If they need to see an orthopedic surgeon, if they have, um, you know, uh, intraarticular injection might be useful in this scenario. Uh, and I would really push a lot of other uh, options that are available to help to help with this scenario. Um, but I think you know when it's a when it's a patient that's sort of uh, you're not actually in the room and like looking at them eye to eye. It's a scenario like this. I think it, it is a challenge to sort of say like I will give X, Y, or Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is it's a, it's a challenge. I think that's why we wanted to highlight this, and especially a challenge for someone with diminished kidney function. And we wanted to have this and highlight this in F Madness because I, I will have just to be honest, I do think that we do not cover this as much as we should in training programs around the country, around the world. Probably. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Said with confidence. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to Hannah Abrams for putting together the pun contest for this episode and to Justin Burke, who was super producer for all our Neff Madness episodes in 2019. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, he's around. He's doing curbsiders. <laughs> Paul, you know that. Come on. Our executive producer is Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Nora Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And Matt, until next time, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.